There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a file to tell Maria exactly how to pronounce my name. I am called in Danish Line. So it's not like Lin, it's like Line. Line Wurm, if you say it in Danish. Okay? Bye-bye. Welcome to Right Lane, the podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. In last week's podcast, we explained that we were recently in Norway to speak at a narrative conference. While we were there, we got interviewed and recorded by a Danish journalist named Lene Vauben, we love her. She's really cool. She asked us to talk about storytelling in the United States and whether the commitment remains in newsrooms that have been struggling after downsizing. So today's topic, narrative in America. At the moment, narration. When you look, now we're here in Norway, but you give talks in the States as well. You, you travel around, you see the kind of narrative environments all over. What are, what's the temperature of the narrative environment at the moment? Is it, is it hot or is it cold? It's a little hard for us because we work in a place that is very dedicated to it and remains dedicated to it. Um, so in, at the Tampa Bay Times, that's always been a signature, at least, I don't know, as far back as when Lane started working there and beyond. Yeah. Back to the 70s. Back to the yeah. 70s. So it the culture is just so ingrained that it's, um, I, I can't imagine that newsroom not focusing on narrative storytelling. Uh, now, nationwide, uh, we had, I think, a great renaissance in the late 90s, in the beginning of the 2000s, where a lot of papers around the country, a lot of newsrooms were focused on narrative work. And then when we started downsizing, which I don't know if it's the same over here, but Completely right around the same. Yeah, 2008. This is, this is it. Um, you know, the, a lot of newspapers, you know, everybody, you know, you ended up losing some experienced people, some people who really knew how to do great narrative work. And you ended up, you know, downsizing in a way where they focused just on doing the bread and butter and not doing the more ambitious things. I think things have turned around a little bit more now because what newsrooms remain and whoever's in them, I think a lot of papers and uh, newsrooms realize that without deep enterprise, without whether it's narrative work or whether it's investigative work or explanatory work, you're not going to get subscribers and we need subscribers. You know, you can't get subscribers just doing the quick breaking news that everybody else does because they can get that in a lot of different places. So I do think there's a recognition that how important that is. The problem, I think, is that we've lost a lot of good people over the years who are were really gifted at it. And now, you know, when you try to get young people, we got you always have talented young people coming in, but are they going to stick with it? Are they going to have a career like Lane's where 20, 25 years later, they could be really exceptional at what they do, but will they stick around long enough? 
that's I don't know. That's me, and that's my assessment in a nutshell. Yeah, I, I think even in our newsroom, there's been a more of a focus toward investigations lately, and, and maybe that's because we didn't have an editor for a little while who was pushing narrative. But I feel like a lot of the young people that uh, come in with a lot of ambition right now are not necessarily wanting to do straight narrative. They're wanting to do narrative investigations, or they're wanting to do something that's going to have an effect to change the world. You know, the the death of the daily feature section, I think, has, has been a precursor to that because when we had, you know, when I started there, we had 16 people on the feature staff and we had a 16-page to 24-page section every day. So anybody could try a little narrative about nothing and it was fine. We wrote a lot of stories about, we call them in the States, Hey Mabels. You know, just a story that the only, the only worth of that story is someone's going to talk about it. But they're going to go, hey, Mabel, did you know this interesting thing? You know, And we've lost the pages for that, and we've lost the people that tell that part. So when we do do narratives now, the majority of them are big, long, deep dives. They're not kind of the quick daily. And so the training ground or the practice ground for those young reporters has been taken away. You know, And I think the Times does a good job, and you especially, about encouraging people to do short narratives or doing narratives off the news so there's still a, a home for that but but the idea of just writing a story for the sake of writing a story I feel like a, a lot of that's been lost um, I, the journalism t- classes that I've taught there's only been a couple people who are at all even acknowledging what narrative was you know the kids want to go in and be investigative reporters to bust down the world or they want to be writerly writers and not necessarily know how to make the content matter you know you, you you use the expression bread and butter. I think it's interesting, like the media, we need the bread and butter, you know, mm-hmm. we need to earn some money. Mm-hmm. What's the argument, I mean, if we if you have to argue for the the survival of narrative journalism, is it is it worth it? Is that, I mean, do we know if people want to pay for it? What do we know about this? Oh, I, I definitely think, I mean, I think the people, I think that is what people will pay for. Uh, and, I mean, investigative work too, but... I think that, you know, for a long time, at least when we got into the business and, you know, we, we, we talked all the time about being the paper of record, you know, like you had to make sure that you took note of everything that happened. And we're not in that world anymore, not by a long shot. So now it's all about what priorities do you have? What are you going to decide to, to focus on? And again, I do think there's been a turn where it's sort of like, okay, what need we need to focus on? are the long-form stories, actually, and the deeper dives, because you find that that's what people engage with. That's where they read to the end. That's what makes them subscribe to your paper. So, yes, I think it's vitally important, but, you know, as Lane says, we have, it's, the, the industry's been decimated, and so there are fewer people around doing it. Um, I do still think, though, I, you know, I, there's a lot of young writers in America and probably around the world who want to be Lane to Gregory. I mean, that's still happening. <laughs> and, but my fear is that they're not going to stick around long enough to figure out how to do it really well, you know, uh, even if they because have the some natural... Because the jobs are not there or because they're... Because the career path's not there or, they, you know, like they because the raises aren't there because you turn out to be 30 or 35 years old and you can't afford a house and, you know, you want to you wanna raise kids and... And, and, you know, you, the hours are long and, and the job is tough. And, and where we had, not that the raises were great, but, but you know, you, could, you can anticipate a career path. You could see yourself still working in the business in 30 years. And I think we've lost a lot of people in their 30s who thought, okay, it's okay to struggle and survive on ramen noodles in my 20s, but I don't want to keep doing that the rest of my life. So I worry about that. 
I think that if you're smart and you're running a newsroom, you want narrative journalism, you want investigative journalism, you want all of that because that is, that's exactly what readers react to. But they react to it, right? But do they pay? Do we know it for fact that they pay? Do we know that? Do, well, is that your experience? Our paper right now doesn't have a paywall. So mm. it's it's hard to track that. Yeah. Uh, but what we do have that we are tracking that I think is going to be maybe a salvation of what we do is the chart beat metrics where now we can say like, okay, I wrote, I don't know, 20 stories last year where some people write, you know, 20 stories a month. But my stories have an engagement time of six minutes, eight minutes, 12 minutes, whereas the news stories have a minute, you know? And I think now that we can measure that and see not only how many hits the stories are getting or how many shares the stories are getting, but how involved are the readers in that story? Are they making it all the way to the end? I think those measurements are going to help uh, prove our worth to the editors and also hopefully to the subscribers. Um, and I know at the Dallas Morning News, my old editor, Mike Wilson, went there to be the editor. They do have a paywall and they have a thing where when you read a project on there, there's a button you, you can read. I don't know how many free reads you get, but after if you're reading a project and you're engaged in a project, it'll say subscribe here. And then they start measuring how many subscriptions do they get from the people who read that narrative. You know, the person reading the city council story isn't necessarily going to want to click and subscribe, but if you're into this eight-part series that they've done as a narrative and you want to subscribe, that's where they're going to start to monetize and to realize This this can make money for the paper. I, I think we will have like the Seattle Times is using a, a a certain program now where they can do it on they can kind of see on every kind of story what's driving subscriptions. It's the same idea really. I at the Times we don't have anything like that yet, um, but in the past, I mean, anecdotally, I I hear it all the time. Somebody will say this is what keeps me subscribing to the paper, or this is why I subscribe to the paper. Um, and I know that in in past newspapers we've had actual readership surveys and and you you know you you say to people why do you subscribe or what got you to subscribe and it's invariably the, the you know the the deep dive the, the the stories that they see that really tell them about their communities in a big way or um just engage them just Make get them fired up yeah and it's yeah. and it's common sense right i mean you don't want to pay for something that doesn't that uh, you don't think you're getting anything out of it mm. if you feel like it's worth it. And I think, you know, um, obviously, you know, a, a well-told story, if you're a reader, if you're a person who, who likes that, that's what that's what you're going to pay for. But but also we are competing with other things kind of uh, distracting people and taking their time. It's not right. only a question of money. Sure. It's also a question of like, That's how I feel, that the, the world moving so quickly, all these distractions all the time. How do we keep them focused on actually getting the whole long story, right? right. So do you ever think of who you're competing with apart from uh, everything? I mean, Netflix or mm -hmm. Facebook, etc. Do you think about that when you make your stories or how to keep people focused on the story? I mean, I think every story I want, I try to figure out how to keep them reading past the commercial, you know, or past the jump or the turn of the page. Yeah. But I actually think 
what might seem like a distraction with podcasts might be a really helpful thing for the future of narrative yeah. because I think people that never would have read a narrative in the paper are following Serial or Dirty John or S-Town and some of those three really big podcasts that have gotten national, international attention from audiences that probably wouldn't have read it in the paper that Sort of long. a new way to get so, people. Yeah, a new way to share your narrative, a new way to get a new audience. Uh, people who might not have time to sit down and read a 10,000 word story in the paper but they can listen to it on the way to work. They can listen to it at the gym, you know, while they're on the treadmill. And I, I think it's, it's the repackaging and repurposing might really help us down the road. I also think that, you know, it's funny people talk about, you know, oh, especially young people don't want to read and uh, they have no interest in that. And yes, these days you can pick and choose. You can, you, you know, I, I know from my own children who use, you know, my son is a big fan of Reddit and you know, they 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 kind of like they look for things that interest them, and then they and then they'll jump in. But people people read people read all the time. People read what they what they find interesting. And uh, I know is that it was interesting to me that as as newspapers are struggling, J.K. Rowling is making a fortune. You know, getting kids to read these massive books, right? Um, it's uh, it's about the story, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, it's about whether you're doing the kinds of stories that are really going to draw people in. And if you get those kinds of stories, they get traction. And and the flip side of all of this gloom and doom is now one of Lane's stories could be read all around the world, not just in St. Petersburg, Florida, right? So if you can figure out, if this industry could just figure out how to help monetize everything a little better, uh, there are people who would pay. You yeah. know, the, yeah. the, the, because there are people who love great stories, mm -hmm. and you know, that's the thing we debate a lot in Scandinavia because our language is so small. So, like, I'd like to, I'd love to share some of my stories with you guys, but it's in a different language. So, mm -hmm. we, the language is it's a small language area, and we're actually talking about, you know, should we translate more of our stuff? Yeah. Should we, you know, to to make it to a broader audience, right? Because being Danish, it's like five million, not even five million potential readers, but just five million citizens. It's nothing. I was in uh, Houston, Texas before I came to to, uh, to Florida, and at the Houston Chronicle uh, a couple years ago, we put um, Google Translate on our website so that the five most spoken languages in Houston, you could translate any story into one of the five most spoken languages in Houston. And it's not perfect translation. Google Translate isn't perfect. It will. But it will be. But at some point, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, at some point it'll become even better. But for right now, yeah. I thought it was a really strong, brilliant move. Um, shout out to Jordan Rubio. And uh, but you know, you have a story, and what does that say to all these readers? That you think about that audience. That can okay, I really that's an interesting topic, but my English isn't so good. I'm going to click on there, and suddenly I'm reading it in Urdu, and and now I start, you know, connecting to that to that paper and that website, and oh, okay, this people might have something to offer me. So yeah, I think. Language, I mean, but, but uh, well, how do you connect with the world, which is now your potential audience? I think we have a lot of uh, possibilities there. I, I don't even think we've scratched the surface of all those possibilities. And obviously, one of the biggest things for us now as a challenge is not only to do a great story, but get it in front of the people who are going to be excited about it and share it from there, you know, keep it going. And we I mean, we're just starting to scratch the surface, I think, on what's possible in curating stories and making sure that you get in front of the right audience, right? Like, Lane just did this story this week on Rosewood, 
this, um, which was the scene of this horrible massacre. We haven't done this yet, but she and I could sit down and we could think about, okay, who are all the people out? Who are the historians? Who are the people who are very into African-American history? Who, who's the director of the movie about Rosewood? Um, John Singleton. And we said, okay, we, we could shout out to those people and we could say, hey, here's a story that you might want to read. And suddenly, you know, that, that becomes, it gives so you more have traction. To think, so you have to think much more about creating uh, curating your story uh, through social media, through your sources, etc. Today, it's it's a part of the narration. It's actually you can't expect people to get your story, so you have to work much harder on it, right? Yeah. I think another piece of the um, maybe maybe good news or, or, or things that might help is the presentation. Um, it's no longer you know okay to be the old gray lady of the New York Times or even the boring Wall Street Journal that's all type 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 type. My stories that have gotten the most traction lately have been the ones that had beautiful design and interactive things. And the first story my, my teenage son's ever posted online was one that had video and 911 calls and original documents and uh, you know home video off of telephones and text messages back and forth. So incorporating other components of storytelling that's not just the words and pictures um, and having them presented beautifully so that the younger audience especially is engaged not just by the words and but the whole package. Mm. But this takes time. I mean and involves more people. Mm. So you need a stronger argument to get the the time and the people and the money and the to get it done, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and but I mean success is it ultimately that's what that's what wins you the time and and success uh, wins you, you know? time. Yeah. Uh, so but you know, Lane's right. There's so many more tools now to enhance our storytelling. Mm -hmm. So you can, you can, which is a gift if you figure out how to do it and how to leverage it. And it's not something we, when we were first coming up, it's not something we had the ability to do. Mm -hmm. And now you could, you could add all kinds of things. You could add video clips. You can add sound. You can. You know, you can engage people so many different ways. And original documents, even the yeah. ability to, to show people your reporting, I think we can be a lot more transparent about how we got stuff, mm -hmm. you know, or what, what the court documents said. If you want to read the rest of this, you can go read it. Click here, you know. Yeah. That story that I mentioned was actually done by an intern, laid it out. So it was a 20-year-old girl who, you know, in just, or 22-year-old girl who just finished college who said, hey, can I do this? You know, so it wasn't like hiring a whole new team. It was a person who was designing boring pages the rest of the week and went, oh my God, this would be so fun. You know what I mean? But do you think that this, I mean, in the 90s, there was this boom, then we had the less money, less time, less people kind of face. And now it's, it's kind of, we're growing into a, a new kind of era of making this happen in spite of, etc. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's a healthy experience or is it a... We're struggling to survive experience. Is there anything healthy about being that you have to think much more about getting the audience because it's not necessarily there? Well, I mean, I, I guess I'd say that coming out the other end and, and, and really I, there are times when I sit here and I think I'm, I'm stunned that I'm still in this business after all of the downsizing. Um, but then you think, well, and this, I tell young people all the time, young journalists all the time, you have the gift of not having to do all the crap that we had to do. <laughs> you know, you get to decide and you get with your editors, you know, what are the best stories we could be doing? So in some ways, we are set free from kind of the old way of, of doing things. Um, and yes, it's, uh, I mean, 
There's so many more things you can do with stories. And yes, they take a lot more time, but how could you not get excited about them? And how, you know, I think we both get revved up, not only the story, but what we could potentially do with it. Um, how do we get people to really engage with it? Uh, so it's, I think it's kind of a, it's a way to get challenged and excited about what you're doing despite not having as many people doing it anymore. And I think it's it's shifted the workload a little bit. You know, I feel like we don't have the same burden to cover every single county, city council exactly. meeting and school board meeting and stuff like that. But we do have a lot more responsibility to market our stories. I mean, that was never a thought that I had in my 30s of like, who do I need to Twitter to tweet at? Who do I need? How do I write a, a search engine optimization headline? Right. You know, what components of this need to be? sent out to other media or other stakeholders or other people who might share it and share it and share it again and, and how do I build me as a brand I mean to me that's still a really scary and awful thing because I like to be the invisible journalist who isn't a persona but all of a sudden that's become a thing that if you, you want to have your reporters be not celebrities but like a, pers- a person that the, the readers are going to be attracted to not just the story but the writer and I think we haven't figured that out very well yet but it, it's both uh, empowering and intimidating to me to feel like oh, we should have spent a half an hour figuring out how to tweet out Rosewood and get more audience for that. You know, we have one person in our newsroom of what, three hundred people, who does all the social media. Hundred fifty people. Hundred fifty people. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not possible for him to do everybody's. You know, so I think there's a lot more pressure and and onus on the reporter and the editor. To, to get this stuff out there. The beauty part is we still can. Right. The story is there, it'll be there and you know. I, I think if you if you if you're still in this business, you have to see the glass half full. Because you can't stay in it otherwise. You you have really you can and you shouldn't because it's it's demoralizing otherwise. I think you have to sort of embrace the fact that all right, what's good about the situation we're in? In in our case, we we work somewhere that really appreciates what we do which is terrific. So we can spend time doing a deeper dive and that's okay. And, and yes, every once in a while they want us to do a quick return and that's okay. Um, but, uh, you know, if, you, if you're still in it, I think you, you have to be looking at all the things that work to your advantage. And uh, yeah, we, we don't cover everything we used to cover, but now we get to make better choices about what we do cover. Mm-hmm. And uh, we may not write as many stories, but the ones we do write, you know, we're trying to make sure that they have all the bells and whistles and really attract people. So it's it's also on top of the. It is a creative process because then you'll have to choose, right? Right. And that's what it's very much about mm-hmm. making a narrative, right? Choosing mm-hmm. the right bits, right? Yeah. So I was thinking something else. Um, when we do narratives, or when I think of narratives in my paper, I I I've started thinking about what. When the internet came, it was all, but then it's all gone and it's uh, it's fast, etc. But I've begun thinking of it like a really kind of slow pace because things stay there. Do you ever think of the stories you do as they? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. They have a certain, like, they have such a long afterlife. 
as I mean the shelf life possibility. Talk about the girl in the window, the shelf yeah. life of the girl in the window. That was the first one I'd done. This was in 2008 where it really kind of took off internationally and, yeah. and it got translated into 12 different languages and it kind of blew my mind how how rapidly it got shared and disseminated and you know 10 years later I wrote a follow-up story and that story ended up sending all those new readers back to the story 10 years ago you know and so it 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 kind of surprises like we keep a chart beat now you know on stories and that story is in my chart beat almost every single day still people are clicking on that more than almost anything I've written in the last 10 years and that's huge I mean I, I grew up in the days we had to cut your story out with scissors and mail it to your mom you know and now it's like Did the same click thing. click click you know that story has been uh, clicked on more than 1.5 million times and you know uh, <laughs> uh, And it's going to keep going. I mean, it'll just keep going and going. And yeah, that. So again, glass half full. Some of our some of our stories have the state kind of staying power that they never had before. You know, they're never going to be passed around quite quite as much. And it's a good argument as well in the newsroom yeah. that this is going to stay yeah. compared to all the news stories right, that are just right. not interesting. Because we're monetizing that. Yeah. I mean, that attention is coming our way, and that's yeah. what we're trying to. to you know. You, yeah. Um, Let's see, you were talking about, you know, the rise of the internet to me is, uh, I feel like everybody, and I'm sure uh, for all of us, it's like you get to a point where you feel so overwhelmed by the amount of things out there. It's like going to a restaurant with a really big menu, you know? It's like, how many things do you really want to, you know, what, but I think you, you're going for that audience that knows what they want, right? They, they're they're going to, I want the steak, so I'm going over here to this part of the menu, <laughs> and, um, you know, I want it a certain way, and the things that, that we can draw out. I think we have, we're lucky, we have a pretty loyal readership in in, in the Bay Area where we are. Um, we have way too many print subscribers still, which is a problem, actually, when the cost of newsprint keeps going up. Um, but, so, you know, what we have, all of us, we we have we're going for loyal readers we're going for quality and not quantity as an industry which i think makes sense you you want those people who are really dedicated to this kind of thing and and i and again though as the world gets smaller and you have access to other people who might be intrigued i mean we we talk at the tampa about like having There should be a, a, a subscription model for people who don't live in our area. That's not quite as expensive as those who live in our area, but like, okay, that gives them access to Lane to Gregory stories when they want, and they, they want to follow some of our ambitious work. We get a little money out of those readers from across the country, and I think people would pay to support that. I pay to support the Washington Post. I don't live in Washington, yeah. but you know, it's not just because I like some of the stories they do. I, I consciously pay to support them, right? Uh, Bezos should pay to support us some too, but yeah. Well, I think about the model of, you know, musicians for a long time weren't making any money when they started giving away the music for free, and then all of a sudden yeah. people were paying a dollar a song. A right. dollar a song. My kids would spend their whole allowance just buying their iTunes for the week, and I thought, if people pay a dollar for a song, why wouldn't they pay a quarter for a story? You know, it, it just seems like we, we have not had a paywall at the paper in a while, so how can you monetize anything that that's way? The, you know that's a I good mean? parallel, though, because the music industry figured out a way to get back there and be more aggressive and to say what we do has value and you can't be because people were getting it for free for a while the same thing the brilliant our brilliant um, industry strategy of giving stories away Oof. yeah you know at, and now I, obviously everybody's turned around and is trying to figure out what's the right price point and how do you do this 
and really it's a good deal. Part of our problem is we got rid of marketing departments. We got rid of everyone who's like supposed to be selling things who really could do a good job of like, it's a good deal. I mean, $10 a month for most newspapers and what they produce. Um, but that's the thing. I mean, finding the right way of doing it because we, at my paper, we have like 20,000 subscribers. Subscribers. It's, it's, um, that's quite good in Denmark anyway. Mm-hmm. But, um, and, um, but the print is dropping and right. the net is rising so and we don't get as much out of the um, net subscribers but you need the, so you need more subscribers <laughs> so we yeah exactly you need more subscribers online to yeah, make up for that exactly. but, the, but what we'll all gain eventually at some point is when there isn't a printing press when there isn't the delivery cost of exactly. taking a paper around then what yeah. you need is more people who will support it by being those people exactly. who get it on their phone or get it on their laptop, which is, let's face it, that's the way the world's going. I was just going to say, how many years with yeah. print? What do you think? I don't know. People were saying 15 years ago we weren't going to be printing a paper today. And, yeah. I, you know, and here we still are. So, and, you know, and <laughs> there was suddenly the rise of, of Kindle and, and those kind of things, and now you know, printed books are back in vogue, you know, I, I don't know. I think there's still, I could see a day. I don't, I don't think it's going to be abrupt and we're going to be done from one day to the next. I can see a day when we're all maybe putting Sunday papers out, but not during the week. We were talking about that as well. Yeah. Like the best of in a magazine yeah. form. I, that we become more of a magazine in print and then more of a, a more of a newspaper, more of a newspaper quote, uh, unquote, in, in the online world. Yeah. And I could see that happening taking us through the end of our careers. I don't know about you. You're younger. So um. <laughs> we live in a weird place too, Tampa Bay, because we have so many old people there. So our, our readership is skewed yeah. to the older reader who's still And they're going to die. Yeah. They are what going are you gonna to do? die. <laughs> what are you going to do? Because that's what we're talking about. We have, uh, we have so many gray-haired, yeah. f- faithful readers. They've been having our paper since they, uh, you know, since they were born and they love it. Yeah. But they're dying, right? But young people become middle-aged people, become old people, right? Young people end up buying homes and paying taxes and having children and having those children go to school. And they invariably grow to care a lot about their communities. So let's face it, all of us were young and didn't always read the news as it was. Uh, but are they going to subscribe to anything you well, think? But again, are they going to pick and choose? Then it gets back to like, okay, are you giving them something that's worth subscribing to? Yeah. So yeah. if I'm, if I'm, I don't care how old I am, if I'm 20, if I'm 40, if I'm 60, and you're giving me like three paragraphs about this and four paragraphs about that, and I can get it on a, on a Google search from anywhere else, why should I pay for that? Mm-hmm. But if you're giving me you know, an eight-part Lane to Gregory series that I can't get anywhere else in the world um, and that moves me and inspires me, then yeah, hell yeah, I'd pay for it. And, yeah. you know, I'm not paying for you to deliver it to me. So it's not, I'm not paying that much for it, in all things considered. Yeah. My son, my youngest son's in college at Northwestern University in Chicago, and they have such a huge readership for their school paper. It's unbelievable. It's all it's printed still, but the majority of their people are online, and it's it's a really good publication, which helps. But I, it's, it's so gratifying and exciting to me to see that the, all these college students are still reading their college paper. You know. So will so the narrative's gonna survive, but we don't know about the platform. Is that it? Oh, for sure. Yeah. But, and you know, and but I think online is a terrific platform for narrative work. I mean, I you know, I think we, I, at least in the U.S., uh, somebody, 
you know, will write a, a really impressive narrative and suddenly, at least within journalism circles, we're all like, hey, have you read such and such a story yet? Mm -hmm. And it gets passed around. You know, Lane mentioned podcasting, which I think is another way to sort of turn narratives into a form that draws in more people. But all those podcasts, um, well, Dirty John, at least, for instance, was a story in the printed paper first, first. and then they turned it into a podcast. Um, we're talking about podcasting the story that uh, Link, that the Lane's working on right now called Lincoln Shot, yeah. and um, it's about a boy with a medical condition who may have a chance at a cure. And we've also talked about doing a documentary. So we're talking about, you know, using, telling, using narrative, but using it in different ways. Yeah. Which the San Francisco Chronicle did a documentary, was it last year? The one on the AIDS survivors? Maybe year two before. years ago? Yeah. And they turned it into a documentary. And they sold tickets for $10. And they made thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of people who wanted to come to the theater and see this hour-long newspaper-produced documentary. So, you know, I feel like, and that was a, a written thing first mm -hmm. as well. I feel like there's different formats that we're going to need to explore uh, to draw in these different audiences. And the same story might reach people in print for some, online for some, mm. in a podcast for some, in a documentary for some. So we've got the options now. We've just got to figure out how to monetize that. One thing, this is not a question, but more sharing. Um, one thing we talk a lot about on my paper is kind of uh, drawing people into feeling that the paper is their paper and a mm -hmm. part of their identity. Mm -hmm. And not only through reading the paper, but having like uh, arranging a debate over stuff that we had in the paper or uh, making podcasts or um, uh, reusing the material in a way that engages people in different ways than just reading. Because we found out that a lot of people spend their time kind of going out, debating stuff, uh, uh, listening to. So our podcast is a podcast about what's been in the paper. It, it sounds really dull, but it's more by the end of the week, we'll have a podcast of, uh, hey, what was in the paper this week? Uh, he, listen to the journalist who did the story. She did a soundbite. Listen to this. Mm -hmm. um, what was the most... Uh, a red story this week and why do you think that happened so it's like a podcast about us really but it's so many people listen to it and it's a different way of getting into the paper so and see people are engaged you know but then yeah. again then sort of that takes the time you you all need to do that right you need to reach out and engage them and i think when when we do that invariably as an industry people react yeah because i think people want to people do want to know they want to be in the know and they also want to feel like their opinions are valued and they have a you know they're part of the conversation as an industry we haven't done a good job about that you know we haven't made people part of the conversation we have written we sort of like here's it's a one-way conversation you know and so obviously if we did that and I've worked at papers where we we did more of that we had you know a community advisory group and people came in and told us you know what they thought or have a town hall or you know ha have forums where you invite people in to to meet someone you know so they belong yeah so yeah. i mean it, in at the chronicle we would have for instance like a, a an evening with the metro columnist and it would be packed packed mm. with people be and then you know that energy and that traction i think gets you a lot as a community people get to feel like yes this is my this is one of my institutions is the, the ownership yeah, yeah. And the ownership yeah. yeah but don't you feel like lane that that the thing that you also have to do now you have to do podcast and you have to be the star lane everyone comes to see 
this is Lane de Gregory, I'm talking about my story, all this. Don't you feel that this is like, hey, this wasn't what I asked for? Absolutely. I'm asking because I'm asked to do the same thing, I, I right? I don't like making myself the star of it. I don't, I don't mind promoting it in social media and all, but yeah. then they're like, can you do a Facebook Live for a few minutes? I don't want to be on Facebook Live, you know? But those are the kind of things that I think are expected now to engage people and have them connect not just with the story but with me. Yeah. Um, that's not comfortable for me yet. I know there's younger reporters who love that piece of it, you know, who love having their face out there. And, and I think that's something, you know, that's maybe that's my problem more than the industry problem. But, you know, we, we were talking about even doing something for this Lincoln's Project story of doing a Facebook Live with the parents. You know, so all of a sudden, if the readers want to engage and talk directly to the parents, they're willing to do that. That's a whole nother level of engagement of putting your subjects out there rather than just the writers, you know. And not everybody would be comfortable doing that, but for the ones who are willing, I think that's going to draw in a lot of attention from folks who might not read my story uh, beyond, you know, the beginning or whatever, but want to interface with the mom and dad. Okay. So... What I sense in this conversation is a lot of we're thinking, yeah, it's going to be all right. You know, it's uh, we there are obstacles, but we're 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 getting through with it. This is also a healthy experience. We're getting somewhere. But if you have to point out like the the most challenging thing about making your narratives today, what is that in the conditions that we are actually facing at the moment? What's our biggest challenge? Well, I mean, as an industry, I think it's resources still. I mean, do, do people, not everybody makes decisions the same way. Not everybody prioritizes the same way. So there are certainly newsrooms where this isn't a priority. Um, I also think that uh, there aren't as many people studying it or getting a chance to do it. And so then, and then there are also a lot of newsroom editors who don't understand narrative, don't really know what it takes to do it, don't understand how much of it is not writing pretty words, but <laughs> reporting, and how the level of reporting that is, to me, the equivalent of investigative reporting, uh, but on a, in a different arena, and sometimes you're marrying those two. Uh, so I think, I think we're hampered by not having enough editors who, who understand narrative or appreciate all that, all that it can do and, and how it works. And, and we're hampered by resources, and we're hampered, like we've talked about, by some of the people who've left the business, who were, you know, who helped kind of spread the gospel, as it were. Our tribe has gotten a lot smaller. You know, I think we think of ourselves as a tribe in, in, in America, and there's, uh, and, and around the world, mm. you know, and, and uh, there just aren't as many people. And I think something else you mentioned yesterday in terms of building the culture, but it, I think it's very ingrained when when you're a reporter to have to share the bad emails and phone calls with your editor, like, oh, somebody hated this, or, oh, you screwed up on this, or you did something wrong, but it's not as natural to share the good stuff. So we really made an effort to, like, when you get a, a note from a reader that's like, oh, my God, I loved that story. Oh, my God, I wish you guys would do more of this. Oh, my God, I couldn't wait to get part two on the end of my driveway. And share those to the higher-up people who might not understand the value of engagement of those types of stories. You know? do, do you feel that investigative reporting is valued higher than, than narrative reporting, or is that old news in the States? Because no, that's... I do. I'll say that right off the top of my head. I feel there's a lot more value for investigative reporting and a lot more value you put on results reporting what what did this story change exactly who did the story hold accountable how did this story make the world a better place rather than just 
this was an amazing story that made me cry and hug my kid. You know, I, I think it, 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 at least in our paper, which was one of the best narrative papers, maybe, probably still is in the country, I hope, I feel like even there, there's a lot more value put on the investigative stuff. I, I don't disagree, of course, but but there is, um, and and I and I understand it because, in if you have results from investigative work, there is a very quick payoff to that, and people, you know, and again, who are the editors in charge, and what do they value? I think for a lot of editors, there's a cause and effect there, and they see the results more easily than they might with a narrative story that that is connecting with readers in a different way. Um, maybe not as uh, maybe a more subtle way, but it's definitely connecting with readers. So, I I, I can't fault people for wanting investigative work. That's mm. part of our DNA. That's part of what we do. That's part of what drove us all into the business, right? To be able to uncover malfeasance and problems and 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 right wrongs. So, that's great, and that that should always be a priority everywhere. I think. Um, but again, I think because narrative work, it it. It so often it's so it has that same level of depth of reporting, um, and and you do get this amazing payoff. It's just different, and not I don't think it's as understood as investigative work, and not but as easy to measure. That's Why? Not, not as easy to say, measure. Not as easy to measure. You can say, oh, we wrote a story about this slumlord who had you know horrible conditions of their houses, mm. and now the city comes down and clamps on and fixes the houses, whereas. Girl in the window got at least three kids adopted. Got a three thirty three percent increase to the child abuse hotline calls. How do you measure that? You know, there, it's is it more valuable to fix crappy housing for poor people or to adopt children out of foster care and call in child abuse cases? Mm. It's very hard to measure that. And is it also because in a lot of the the press DNA, it's like we are kind of the watchdogs. You sure. know, we we it's the that's our kind of. Um, what you call it that that's uh, our um we're not not our quest but more kind of that's why we're allowed to be here because that's our goal kind right of thing. that's yeah. one of our crucial missions so yeah yes. missions yeah. yeah but i mean yeah. i i also it believe, justifies yes of yeah. course that, but that's that's one of the things that we have to do right that's uh it's such an important component of what we do yeah um but i also think that we have to tell a place about itself. We have to turn a mirror on the place that we're covering, and we have to, we have to reflect stories that really matter to people. Um, and you know, the narrative is such a great format for that. Of course, you can do narrative investigations too. I mean, I mm. think those are those are the, like the highest degree of difficulty because you have to be both a good investigator, both a good writer, and that's and and you're reporting not only the get, but finding a way to turn that get into into a story yeah um so and and that i will say if you look back at the last 10 or 15 years uh or even going back 20 years there's been more investigative work done as narrative there's been more people trying to do them as narrative we've gotten away from the tampa bay times has just has found that you know the blah, city blah, blah, isn't blah. doing blah 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 bullet yeah. bullet bullet bullet, bullet. <laughs> yeah. you know there's still there's still some of that <laughs> around but it's interesting to me that that's been happening more and more. So, you know, yes, not maybe a traditional narrative that may not have the strongest news hook, but but certainly there's a lot of investigative reporters who are trying to do narrative. You know, yeah, I'm I'm going to an IRE conference at the end of next week that where my talk is writing the investigative narrative, and that's sold out in like three days. I mean, people yeah. are very into 
um, trying to storytell. And I think as, as there's so much more um, emphasis put on data and documents, narrative's going to become even more important because those data stories are dry as hell. And the people that are good at digging up data or crunching numbers or going yeah. through databases are not necessarily good writers. Exactly. You know? So it kind of needs to, to marry those two things. And same thing with graphics. We had um, one of my favorite things they've done at the paper in the past couple of years is after the Pulse nightclub shooting happened, are again interns, two interns who were designers, made this interactive graphic that was really a narrative where you could enter the door as if you were a patron at the nightclub. Here's where the bar is, here's where the bathroom is, here's where the disco light and the dance floor is, and move your little character through this world, um, you know, a, a cyber created reality world of what this news story looked like. You know, yeah. that was its own little narrative, but it was done with animation. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I'm going to end this now. Also because the next we'll be, we'll be ha having to run to do our great panel debate about Tom Wolfe. Yes, you and I. In a minute. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, and what we've all learned from him. Anyway, uh, <laughs> how he's made a great impression on our narration. Um, but anyway, uh, thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, I hope we'll be able to continue our conversation for many years to come because I follow your work. I love your work and uh, I wish you could read mine. <laughs> we Send us too. some links. We'll do Google Translate. You do the Google. Yeah. We'll, we'll Actually, Mark. Like, we know she didn't write it like this. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to end this now because it's all chit chatter. But, Thank you. Uh, mm -hmm. But. Um, Okay, if you have a question for Lane about any of her stories or would like to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. And join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.